Welcome to Face Your Faith with West Kenyon. It is our hope that today's study will encourage you to grow deeply in your relationship with God as we study the Word together. Now let's join West for today's study. Today we continue with our short series, The Bible, The Big Picture of God's Word. And while I had mentioned at the beginning of part one that this would be a two-part series, that was an error. And I should have said it would be a three-part series with today's part two covering the Old Testament and part three, which will cover the New Testament. And as we prepare to take our very brief journey through the first 39 portions of the scriptures, we need to remember this is God's word. This is his message to us, God speaking to each one who chooses to listen and engage with him. Again, the point of this exercise is not at all to flush out the details of each book. Rather, it is to help us build a grounded, big-picture understanding of the entirety of God's Word. And this is so important if we are going to have a good foundation on which to build a greater knowledge of God. In addition to, and very importantly, the ability to be well-prepared to give a coherent and concise testimony of the scriptures we claim as truth, of the one we claim to love and trust, with our very lives. And if we are incapable of concise and coherent answers to someone who asks why we believe the Bible, God's Word, ultimately God, we will be, and rightly so, branded as ignorant, fraudulent, and hypocritical of our claim of knowing God on any level. And God is likely the only one who you do claim to have a relationship with, who you can't responsibly and authoritatively talk about with passion when you are asked to give a serious answer. With that, let's begin our journey through the scriptures, beginning at the beginning in Genesis. And let me preface by saying I am going to expand on Genesis considerably more than the remaining 65 books. And the simple reason is that the remainder of the Bible is in direct response to the entirety of Genesis. And as many of us know, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, the Old Testament, and from it we gain a glimpse of initial creation. We meet two of the three identities of the Trinity, God and God in spirit form. We get a very concise account of the restoration of a devastated earth through a recreation in six 24-hour time periods, which includes God speaking into existence, vegetation, the various creatures, and our solar system. We then move into God physically and personally making, not speaking into existence, us humans. The first one of each, male and female, who were handed the gift of life in perfection. But it also came with a warning from God to Adam, and that to not eat fruit from one specific tree in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if the fruit were to be eaten, it would result in instant separation from God and a pending death. And God concluding all of this with a day of rest. Next, we meet and hear for the first time directly from the author of evil, Satan, the devil, who presented himself as a snake and introduced to us temptation and doubt by questioning God, which is very quickly followed up by Adam and Eve completely disregarding God's one and only rule he imposed, which then led to the immediate end of the earthly perfection, numerous curses, and the degradation of the entire human race that moment forward, and our first introduction of death. 
Now, in addition to the first account of death, we are also introduced to the first account of being self-serving and not taking responsibility. And that is made quite clear when Adam blamed God for putting his own wife, Eve, in his life. And Eve, in turn, blaming Satan for the predicament, but not once owning up to the wrong they had done. But despite all of this, we see the first act of God's intense love and care for Adam and Eve. And once again, God's desire to save all people from permanent destruction, and that through the gift of forgiveness, through his mercy and grace. And that takes us to our second account of death, which was the killing of a completely innocent sacrifice, the killing of an innocent animal. And that death would literally be used to cover up our disobedience, our sin, our shame. And through this act, we are introduced to the Savior Jesus, our third and final identity of the Trinity, the Godhead, and a true Savior that was to come. We are then introduced to a third death, and that being the first death of another human and by the hand of another human. And subsequently, we are introduced to the first murder, Cain killing his brother Abel. And at this point, we truly have a clear and vivid understanding that from here forward, the theme for all of humanity will be to continue to be dedicated to self, looking inward, not upward, and continuing to deny and rebel against God in all aspects of our lives. And though our insatiable hunger to live a self-sustaining life and fully independent of God, God provides a warning of consequence if the people did not repent and turn back to God. And by virtue of the fact that all but eight people did not listen, God followed through on the promised consequence, second global annihilation by way of the flood, and at which point we meet Noah and his family. Following the flood, Noah, his family, and the animals God saved through the use of the ark all is reestablished on earth, and so is the insatiable desire to live once again for self, completely turning away from God. At the same time, following the flood, God makes a pact, a promise to all of humanity, that this point forward, he will never destroy all life by water ever again. And God signs his pact in the sky, and we are for the first time introduced to his skywriting in the form of a rainbow for all to see regularly as a reminder of this guarantee. A quick side note, immediately following the flood, we also get our first glimpse of what getting hammered drunk looks like, as indicated by the account of Noah getting plastered on the wine he made to celebrate being back on dry land. And Noah ended up partying just a bit too hard, and in the course of his highly drunken state, he strips, passes out in his front yard, and only to have his unsuspecting sons find him in this rather awkward state. Moving on, we now watch an extraordinary attempt on behalf of the human population going all out to outwit God, perhaps even overthrow God by building a tower to heaven, essentially an elevator to the residence of God to gain access when it pleases. But that was met head-on by God, putting an end to that very feeble attempt by confusing everyone with a different language to very effectively hinder any further progress due to the lack of the people understanding each other. Hence, our Tower of Babel. It is here in Genesis 2, and for the first time, that we are also introduced to rape and homosexuality, which is running rampant in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
And it is at the same time we see Abraham pleading and making deals with God not to destroy the people of Sodom and Gomorrah if there would be only one who would repent in that city for their actions that God had deemed detestable. Incredibly, God ultimately agreed numerous times to Abraham, giving every resident numerous opportunities and time. But in the end, no one in the city repented. And so God follows through on his promise and destroys the city and its inhabitants. And it is from this city, Sodom and Gomorrah, that we get our word and the action of committing sodomy. Genesis also introduces us to several other very prominent and important individuals God would use. Again, Abram, who we will know further down the line as Abraham, meaning father of many. In addition to Abraham's son, Isaac, along with Isaac's son, Jacob, the one who wrestled with God and convinced his brother Esau to sell his birthright for a bowl of stew. And we will meet Joseph, Jacob's 11th son, and the many descendants to come. And from here, we are shown the foundations of the nation of Israel and the world to come as we know it today. And with that, we will move right into the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. And the main theme for this book is a seamless carryover from Genesis with God entering into a very personal relationship with the Israelites who left Canaan, future Israel, under Jacob's leadership due to a famine that was taking place. And we are also introduced to Moses, whose life we will observe from birth to death, and a man God used in profound ways despite his many struggles and his feelings of inadequacies to lead the Israelites out of their slavery under Pharaoh's rule and into the promised land. And the book of Exodus is also where we are introduced to the Ten Commandments, the parting of the Red Sea, and the many plagues. Next, we come to Leviticus, which continues on from the book of Exodus. And from it, we learn the various laws that were given to Moses by God for the Israelites to follow. In addition, we see God presenting how the Israelites are to worship him and an account of sanctification or that of being set apart as holy by God. Interestingly enough, the book of Leviticus was once one of the first books studied by Jewish children, and yet today it is on our least looked at books in the entirety of God's Word. Now on to yet another book of the Bible we very often keep packed away, and that is the book of Numbers. And while the book of Numbers appears to be nothing but a long list of data, it is in reality the book that shows us the first of many times the Israelites will turn their backs on God and because of their lack of trust and obedience, it is here that God sentenced them to wander 40 years in the wilderness. And that takes us to wandering into the book of Deuteronomy, where we hear again from Moses re-emphasizing the law, the Ten Commandments. But perhaps more importantly, the Jewish people are hearing from God that the relationship he had with them was not going to fly as a one-way relationship. And it was time for them to agree to honor God and to follow his directions. And then, and only then, would he bless them. Next, we are on to the book of Joshua, the new leader of Israel and the one who leads the nation of Israel in conquering the promised land and the famous battle of Jericho, where the walls came tumbling down. And it is our first introduction to a prostitute and prostitution. Moving on to Judges, and yet another book depicting our nature of turning from God and becoming a society full of disobedience, which is exactly where the Israelites were at this point. And even after God promised to bless them, which resulted in the Jewish people being held captive, 
a consequence God allowed them to wallow in for quite some time. But once again, God shows his love and mercy and sets them free when they finally recognize their disobedient ways. However, this round of rebellion and captivity would not be impactful enough to humble the Israelites, and so they continued to reject God and spiral out of control again and into a severe famine. And this seamlessly takes us to the account of two remarkable women, Naomi and Ruth, and from here we end up in the book of Ruth. But contrary to the title, this account is primarily from the perspective of Naomi and how she and potentially her best friend Ruth would serve each other in catastrophic times and even at the lowest rung of life. Similar to Job, Naomi lost everything, but through this agonizing time, Ruth and Naomi honored God and were fully restored. We clearly see how God used these two women to demonstrate to the Israelites God's devotion, love, mercy, grace, and ultimate restoration for those who do trust him. And the blessings continued with Ruth, and through her, God began the line of King David, which leads to the not-so-distant arrival of the world's ultimate king, Jesus, the Savior of the world. Now we head into the books of First and Second Samuel, where we meet the prophet Samuel and find the Israelites demanding a king who would once and for all allow them to have a unified nation under one government authority. And it is here we meet King Saul, who ended up not being the ideal king after all. And it is here we are also introduced to the famous shepherd boy David, who fought Goliath and was the one to take King Saul's place as king over Israel, and the very one who God would later proclaim of David as a man after his own heart. At this point, we see David interested in building a temple as well to house the Ark of the Covenant. But we find out that God would not let David build this temple after all. Rather, God would have David's son, Solomon, take that role. And it should be noted as well that the building of the temple for the Ark was not God's idea at all, but David's. But let's not forget, it is here we are also introduced to adultery and more murder. And this takes us to First and Second Kings, where we see the ascension of King David's son, King Solomon, to the throne as Israel's new leader, which is followed by the death of King David and once again chaos ensuing for the Israelites as they abandon God yet again. Up next, First and Second Chronicles. And here the book's title is quite explanatory as to what we will discover, and that is a list of ordered events that have already taken place. And here we are given an overview, beginning with Adam to the time of King David and son King Solomon, and the building of the temple. We also get to watch another round of rejecting God, which leads to still more turmoil, and this time God using the Babylonians to capture the southern portion of Israel, dividing the nation, and the temple being destroyed. Next, we come to the book of Ezra, where God sends Ezra to the Israelites in another attempt to get the Jewish people back on track and to stop turning their backs on God. But this time, God also uses Ezra to bring a word of encouragement to them and that of God's unfailing love for the Jewish people as they reunite and rebuild together with God and under God's authority. We also see, at this time, the Israelites rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Now we arrive at the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, who submitted to and trusted God, was used to lead the remaining Jewish people out of Babylon. 
In addition, he led the construction project of rebuilding the city wall of Jerusalem, in addition to leading religious, political, and spiritual restoration that was critical for the survival of the Jewish people following their reunification. Fascinatingly enough, with all God charged Nehemiah to do, he was not a trained pastor or theologian, nor did he work at a church or for any religious institution. Rather, Nehemiah held a secular government job. But as we see, God used this man in astonishing ways as a spiritual leader, political advisor, and counselor for God's kingdom work. And this brings us to the book of Esther and more trouble and turmoil for Israel. In short, Esther was a queen through marriage who helped save Israel from extinction by risking her own life for the Jewish people. And in response to her actions, God once again spared the Israelites from complete destruction. Now on to another account of a devastated and catastrophic moment in someone's life. And that leads us to the book of Job. And it is the second time we get to hear directly from Satan as he has a conversation with God about Job and asks God if he, Satan, could have permission to tempt Job in an attempt to have Job deny his faith in God. God says yes with one condition and that of Satan not having the authority to kill Job. Subsequently, Job is tortured by Satan, gets angry with God, but does not deny God as Satan had hoped. Job is visited by a number of friends along with his wife who will give him exceptionally bad advice, which he rejects and through his steadfast trust and faith in God is restored and is given many times more than he ever had. And from here we arrive at the book of Psalms. And while we most often read the Psalms as poetry, they are in fact a collection of 150 worship songs used by the Jewish people in their time of worship with God. One very familiar Psalm set to modern day music you may be familiar with is the 23rd Psalm, The Lord is My Shepherd, which you can listen to on our YouTube channel at Four Peaks Church. On to the book of Proverbs, where we are presented with a substantial collection of wise sayings and thoughts that encourage us to think deeply about how we respond in a godly manner to various circumstances, how to communicate intelligently, and how to make wise decisions, and how to maintain our dignity and morals. Ecclesiastes is next in line, and at first glance, it appears we take a very uncharacteristic dive in attitude that is presented here in this book. An attitude that appears to present a who cares, what's the point of life anyway philosophy. But in reality, the premise of life being meaningless and no better than the act of chasing after wind is key to our understanding that our earthly gain and desires are truly futile and will come to ruin. But if we are chasing hard after God, His gain and His desires for our lives, it is indeed turned into riches and reward and a full life of meaning. Next up, we arrive at a book with some pretty racy poetry, and that must mean we have arrived at Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. Yes, this is a book that takes us from the first meeting of a man and woman to dating to marriage and on to quite a detailed time in the bedroom. And this is a detailed account of what God designed to take place between a man and a woman who have been joined together in marriage. This account also makes it perfectly clear that we are not to treat sex as embarrassing or dirty, but fully recognize that it is amazing and full of passion and a time to be free to share our bodies fully with one another 
and we are not to hide or indicate that this incredible gift from God is unworthy of discussion in any way. Now to the book of Isaiah, where we see God sending the prophet Isaiah to tell the Israelites that a king would be coming to them soon, and that this king, unlike all the others before, would do what no other king had done before, and that of taking on himself the sins of those who would put their trust in him. However, Isaiah joins a long list of people who would warn the Jewish people that a fresh round of judgment was around the corner for them yet again. Jeremiah is next, and his overarching theme seems to be the reoccurring theme to the Israelites and that of further warnings of the coming judgment by God because of the intense disbelief on behalf of the Jewish people. And once again, reminding them how many times God had spared them from defeat and death. But he also professed that God would now make himself known to them in a much more personal way. The book of Lamentations is next. And this book is just about that, lamenting, or as Oxford defines lamenting as a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. And this is demonstrated on the part of Jeremiah as to the incredible destruction God handed down through the Babylonian invasion to the Israelites, and once again, because of their extreme disobedience. Next, Ezekiel. And from this book, we learn God shows the prophet Ezekiel to speak directly to the Israelites on God's behalf and for the primary purpose of educating them on their continued lack of obedience and continued disregard of what God has been calling them to do. And from here, we are off to the lion's den and the book of Daniel. And at this point, we get another good look at a man who God used to demonstrate what unwavering faith looks like and one who stands for what is right in the eyes of God, even to the point of accepting death, which becomes a powerful example to the very ones who would seek his death. Hosea is next, and this book presents what appears to be a rather contradictory action and that of God telling Hosea to marry a prostitute and only for the relationship to fall apart, and this woman walking away from him, at which point Hosea is told by God to bring her back as his wife again. But while this account appears a bit twisted, this instance is used by God to literally demonstrate what the relationship between Israel and God has looked like. We are now at the book of Joel, where we see God using yet another individual, Joel, to very vividly warn of what is to come and that of what the day will be like at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Next, on to the book of Amos. And from this book, we are introduced to a shepherd God used to drive home a clear message and warning to the northern kingdom of Israel. And while it appeared they were living large and had truly discovered how to be self-sufficient and right where they needed to be, they indeed were spiraling out of control again and into a pit of decay, and again because they turned their backs on God and were once again facing God's discipline. On to the book of Obadiah, and another prophet God used to warn more wayward people, but this time it would be a warning to the nation of Edom, and that trouble for them was on the way for taking advantage of God's chosen, the Israelites. We arrive now at a whale of a story, and the book of Jonah where we meet a man who was another in a long list of people who were rebellious and told God how it would and would not be done. And so he too suffered the consequences of his actions by not going to the city of Nineveh to tell them about God, which resulted in God allowing Jonah to be tossed overboard and swallowed by a large fish, where he remained 
for three days until he was vomited up on the beach. Interestingly enough, as we have seen so far in all of our books to this point, while the fish was solid evidence of a consequence for his disobedience, it was equally used as a profound act of God's love for Jonah as a method of saving him from a very certain death. Subsequently, Jonah did go to Nineveh, and the people listened, repented, and turned to God. But again, this repenting was very short-lived. Next, we come to the book of Micah, and this prophet delivers another very direct message of the coming of the Savior, the Prince of Peace, the Savior Jesus, who will once and for all rule over all. In addition, Micah warns of the judgment that is coming to Judah and Israel. Nahum is next, and God sends him as another messenger to Nineveh, but this time the message to the city is to warn them of God's coming judgment on them for turning their backs on God and plunging into deep moral decay following their awakening with Jonah. We now take a look at the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk takes up a cause, a campaign of sorts with God, and that for God to deal with the rampant evil that had taken over the city of Judah. But justice was on the way when God used the Babylonians to put an end to their out-of-control pride and arrogance. The next book we come to is Zephaniah, and our accounts continue to have nearly identical themes and that of more warnings from God. And this time, God sends the prophet Zephaniah to the Jewish people to warn of more coming judgment on them. But Zephaniah too delivers another very common message, and that of God's promise to bring restoration if they would only be obedient and repent. On to the book of Haggai now, where we find Haggai pressing on the Jewish people who have been recently freed from their exile and to get back to work on finishing rebuilding the temple. And Haggai also encouraged them that this project of rebuilding the temple was a significant part of the discipline they required of learning to put God front and center once again. And this brings us to the second to the last book of the Old Testament, and that would be the book of Zechariah. And here we see the prophet Zechariah also speaking with the recently exiled Jews and warning them of even more judgment yet to come, and that through the coming Messiah, Jesus. And Zechariah joins a long list of predecessors who reveals God's great promise of restoration should they choose to listen. And last but not least, we arrive at the book of Malachi, who delivers still more warnings of a coming judgment, and all because Israel, despite it all, refuses to stay focused on God. And this brings our summary of the Old Testament to a conclusion. Inasmuch, I sincerely hope this has had a significantly positive impact on how you view God's Word and view your own life, struggling to stay connected with God and exactly like the Israelites struggled. The Old Testament carries one very familiar theme, disobedience followed by destruction, followed by God's compassion and mercy leading to restoration. Time and time again, we are warned to put and keep God first. Time and time again, we briefly listen. And time and time again, we completely turn our backs on God and flat out reject the very one who keeps rescuing us from complete destruction. And this is an account of you and me today, right this very second. We are all most often on the run, our backs to God and doing it our way, on our time, and what we think is best for us. Then we fall, and sometimes very hard. And in our times of falling, 
we far more often than not, in our arrogance, blame God for our position. Next time, we will finish with a summary of the New Testament, just as we did today with the Old, and conclude the series on the Bible, the big picture. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we have taken but a tiny peek at your word and what you have done and desire to do for all of humanity. You have continued to pour out your love and compassion and incredible patience with us even when we were furthest from you. Hear our prayer, Lord, a prayer of repentance for our continued disobedience to you. Forgive us for our intense pride, arrogance, and our insatiable desire to crave everything else but you. We thank you inasmuch for your unfathomable love for us and your quickness to forgive us for our sins and for restoring us to yourself. And for that, we are unbelievably grateful. Now we ask for you to give us wisdom and encouragement as we seek you daily in your word and to go as the prophets did and tell the world of your matchless name. And all of this we ask in the name of our Savior, Lord and King, Jesus Christ.